You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Welcome back to Simulcast. I'm Ben Simon, and I'm here today to share a lecture that I gave at the APLS Pediatric Acute Care Conference in 2019 in Perth called Simulation Self-Sabotage. In it, we explore four journal articles to highlight the unintentionally negative impacts we can have as simulation educators on our intended learning outcomes. It's a talk that was heavily influenced by the thoughts and teachings of my friends at Simulcast and in the wider simulation community, and I'm excited to share it with you. Thanks so much to APLS for giving us the permission to use the audio, and I hope you enjoy. Uh, Thanks so much for that lovely introduction. And yeah, Jason has known me since I was a little boy, or at least a first-year intern at the Royal Children's Hospital a long time ago. Um, And I want to start this talk with sharing some other reflections on when I was a little boy. Uh, So I grew up in a small country town called Meningi, which uh, some of the Adelaide contingent will know. It's about an hour and a half out of the city. And my dad was the rural GP there. Um, And when I was about sort of three or five, just down the road from us uh, lived my best friend, and his name was Adam O'Hara. And it's really interesting how you remember stuff as an adult that you experienced as kids in that I don't actually remember much about Adam O'Hara specifically, except for the sort of finite fact that he was my best friend. I remember things around Adam pretty well, though. So I remember he lived on a house at the top of a hill, um, and in his backyard there lived sort of a very large, quite frightening and aggressive German shepherd called Tiny that Adam had named himself. I remember his dad was a truck driver and he used to come back to our house sometimes and I'd watch him talking and I'd notice that his eye would tick from left to right in a discoordinated fashion and I could never work out what was going on but I knew at four or five that it was something that we couldn't ask about. Now that I'm an adult I wonder whether I should ask about whether he should have been a truck driver but that's a different story. (laughs) I I remember very well that Adam taught me lots about facts of life, like the fact that when it rains, it's God flushing the toilet, and when it's uh, thunder, then it's actually God doing a pop-off. And uh, I remember, really, most of all about Adam O'Hara, that he had He-Man. And when you were four in the 80s or so, this is high social capital indeed. And I think my parents seem to be fairly strict on the amount of toys that were allowed in our house. I think they were worried about spoiling us, but Adam had them all. He had He-Man, he had Skeletor, he had Skeletor's castle, he had the Battle Cat, and it was a real highlight of mine to get to go to Adam's house and play with these toys. Now, Adam also had a really nice younger sister who was a couple years older, I don't remember her name. And uh, one day while we were playing in their sort of uh, lounge room area, everybody walked out. So it was just me sitting by the couch and the TV. And sitting next to me was Adam's sister's toys. And in particular, was Twilight Sparkle. <laughs> Look at that hair. Isn't it beautiful and luscious? So being the logical boy that I am, I picked up the brush nearby and started brushing Twilight Sparkle's hair. And then Mrs. O'Hara walked in And I kid you not, it could not have been worse if she had walked in and I was wearing one of her dresses. Yeah? She was not particularly impressed. Yeah? Uh, So for the next five or ten minutes, there was a fair amount of well-intentioned ribbing about how much I must like my little ponies and whether I want to take this one home and isn't this nice and would everybody like to come into the lounge room and watch Ben play with my little pony. And so I remember that, interestingly, very vividly, even though it's you know, uh, 35 years ago or so now. Um, And what's interesting about that to me is that I remember that event very strongly with a strong sense of shame. And I kid you not, I've never picked up a My Little Pony again, you know? Which is tragic because that hair is divine, (laughs) you know? Um, And when I think about that event at the time, it was not particularly traumatic. Mrs. O'Hara was a very nice lady who looked after us very well and she was just having a good time and a light-spirited joke. But I think when I remember that moment, I learned three things about my culture within that small town. The first thing that I think I learned was pretty obvious. Boys should play with He-Man. Girls should play with My Little Pony. There was a clear cultural expectation of what we should do. 
The second thing I learned was that boys were not the same as girls. I'd grown up in a house where we had all boys, so there wasn't really a lot of discussion about the different things that boys and girls should play with. So this was news to me. There are certain things that you're not allowed to play with or you'll get mocked. Yeah. There's a third more insidious message though that I think comes through. And that is that in some ways, I think as a child, I likely picked up that girls have less social value than boys. Yeah. And I'm not saying that as a truth, but I'm saying that's what I wonder I might have learned. Because Mrs. O'Hara was a woman and she was mocking me for displaying feminine traits. So in some ways, if I followed that through to its logical conclusion, that must mean that it's bad to be like her. And I mention these thoughts not because I'm on some huge agenda here, but I think that it's really important to reflect on the fact that there is learning and cultural transmission in every interaction we have with the people that we work with and the people that we teach with. And it, by, it, it bodes well for us to reflect on that and be careful about the specifics of the messages that we send. The other thing that I think it taught to me, or at least that I reflect on, is that it is actually the learner who controls the outcomes or, of your learning objectives and of your teaching sessions. They are the ones who walk away with specific bits of knowledge, and we do not have control over what they take away. The only thing we can control is the messages that we send. And I think sometimes in education, and particularly in simulation, we have become careless about the messages we send with the best of well intentions and actually are sometimes sending conflicting messages. And in many ways, I think to me, we often accidentally commit acts of self-sabotage where the things that we are trying to teach and the values that we are trying to promote are actually being damaged, not by the learners, but by our own behaviours and interactions as teachers. And so for the next uh, sort of 40 minutes or so, I want to just explore some reflections that I've had uh, through some reading in my journal club to try and bring at least not necessarily an evidence base, but at least a theoretical basis to reflect on some of the behaviours and stuff that I think we potentially need to change in SIM, or at the very least, we need to be very careful about thinking about why we do them. And in particular, the big three ticket items for me are to think about mixed messages, to make sure that the values that we say we're promoting are the same as the values we're role modeling. Pointless drama, and I think that's one that we're all guilty of in simulation uh, over the last few years. Um, and that is where we're adding noise, we're adding jokes, or we're adding mockery of other subspecialties. Uh, at the expense of the learner actually picking up the information we want them to take up. And then thirdly, I wanna talk about a slightly more abstract concept, which is the concept of sim zones um, and the zone of proximal development and how sometimes we are designing our simulations in a way that's not necessarily the optimal method for the actual skill or concept that we wanna speak, want to teach. Uh, this is very much designed to be an interactive session, so please feel free, I'll pause at little points to ask you guys if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, disagreements or uh, reflections, and uh, I'd really appreciate it if you can join in. Um, so, the first thing I want to talk about is this concept of mixed messages, and in particular, the hidden curriculum. Now, most of us will at some point have likely heard of the concept of the hidden curriculum, but if you haven't, it's essentially the idea that there are things that we teach without explicitly naming them, but that our learners pick up through a process of enculturation. So if you think about med school and your internship, for example, if you're medical, um, or if you, you were a new grad and the experiences that you had as you were going through that onboarding process, um, besides the knowledge that you picked up, besides the understanding of how to order a path form or how to um, do an appropriate set of OBS and, and record a child's work of breathing, for example, um, you also likely picked up other things like how we interact as a team, how we raise concerns with the doctor, how we disagree with each other on the floor, what we think about our patients and what we think about the families that we work with. Yeah. Um, and the challenge with hidden curriculum is that it's hidden. And so not only does the learner not necessarily recognize that it's happening, but often we don't recognize that it's happening as well. 
And I think that it's really important that we think specifically about the messages we're sending with our simulation. And the reason that I think this is because I've read a couple of papers by these guys. So this is Eve Purdy and Vic Brazel, and they're an interesting combination in that Eve uh, particularly is from Canada, uh, and she is an emergency physician in Canada, but she is also a trained anthropologist. Um, and Vic is a, a highly prominent uh, simulation expert and emergency physician at the Gold Coast University Hospital. And at Bond, they run a uh, simulated ED, which goes for two days. And over that time, they bring in groups of medical students uh, to go through and take handover from the preceding med students and look after a series of patients. And there's about, uh, I think, 15 to 20 beds with simulated patients, actors or mannequins within that department. And over the course of their four hours in that exercise, uh, Eve and Vic uh, took some anthropological observations and then interviewed them after about the things that they had found and learned during that exercise. And they didn't learn much about specific emergency diagnoses or how to manage them, although they were, they were obviously each individually exposed to a couple of those cases. Um, but what they particularly learned was that they were able to reflect and understand better the culture of emergency. They are able to understand specific behaviours that were valued, how they interacted as a team, that it was valued that you were efficient and concise, um, that it was important to centre the patient at the centre of that care. Um, and so I think when I think about that paper, if you scan that QR code up there with your phone, it will take you to a link of the paper. So if you open up your camera, you can just, um, it'll come up with a link. Um, but the, the importance to me of that paper is this concept of the hidden curriculum and also what Eve calls cultural compression. And cultural compression uh, is sort of defined as a moment in time when someone feels the values of their culture more explicitly or strongly. Yeah? So that example uh, in my, from my childhood of playing with different toys is in some ways an example of cultural compression where I was feeling pushing against the border of what was socially acceptable within that culture and therefore feeling the values transmitted more strongly and understanding that there was an edge to the expectations of my uh, behaviour. And that is something that we all transmit all the time. Yeah? I'm just going to think for a sec. So when I think about the hidden curriculum uh, particularly, I think a lot about how we role model in simulation. And a lot of the time, I think that we incorporate an element of mockery or satire to the simulations that we run. Uh, we will often uh, include, for example, an overacting parent or an overly emotional parent. If we're involving a specialty that is not the specialty or the host specialty of the simulation per se, if we're emergency and we're bringing an ICU, um, if we're surge and we're bringing in general peds, for example, uh, I think that there will often be cases and that there will be likely cases that you can reflect on where the person who is the other, the person who is not representing your team, is not necessarily portrayed or represented in a particularly respectful fashion. Would that be a fair observation? And I think we often justify that. We say things like, we're trying to keep this lighthearted. We're just having a bit of fun. We're taking the edge off and we're making people feel safe. And I think that's, that that intention is true. But remember, it is the learners who are controlling the learning outcomes. And they are not stupid and they will pick up other things. They will understand the level of respect that emergency has for patients and their families. If when we go to a simulation, we act out and role play our worst fears of what their negative behaviours can be when we're trying to promote a culture of multidisciplinary teams and incorporating everybody within the hospital to look after a patient and consider themselves one team, but then we mock and make fun of each other within the sim, there is an asynchrony between the message we say we're teaching and the message we're actually teaching. And in doing so, I worry that sometimes the wrong message is being transmitted uh, to our tribe. <coughs> Any reflections on that or thoughts?
that's identifying the uh, tribalism that we already have within medicine. And it's very easy to mock another group that aren't actually representative of the yep. group that's actually there. And uh, it's something that happens in daily practice. So it's not actually showing what we don't do, it's actually showing what probably does happen, but that shouldn't happen as much as it does. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, I, I think it's very true that we are in some ways mirroring some of the behaviours that we uh, uh, perpetuate on the floor as well. Um, and I think that sim is an opportunity to then uh, potentially correct the role modelling at least of what is expected behaviour because it is very much explicitly an opportunity to transmit the culture and values of our team. I do think actually one thing that's interesting is I don't think it's done uh, with uh, a malicious intent, and often it's actually done with the opposite. Op often it's well-meaning. So I remember when we were designing a sim once uh, where somebody needed to make a mistake. A, a drug that a patient was clearly allergic to uh, needed to be given. And so somebody wrote the sim uh, and then looked at it and thought, oh, this makes our nurse look really bad. We don't want that, so we'll rewrite it. We'll make it an agency nurse. Yeah? So we've taken one problem, <laughs> but now we're sending a very clear message to our team <laughs> about somebody from another team who needs to feel welcomed and incorporated, and instead we're making it clear that, but, that errors are expected and, are, and are tolerated if you are outside our team, if you're an agency nurse, but if you're within our team, that is not actually acceptable behavior. Yeah? So it's not done necessarily because we mean to, uh, but in protecting our own team's sense of self, sometimes I think we then start transmitting uh, the wrong message about others. How, how then do you achieve some sense of the light hearted? There's so much humor and self appreciating. Yeah. <laughs> Just asking, how, how do you um, introduce some light heartedness or try and break the tension? with some humour, because so much humour, especially Australian humour, is self-depreciating or um, yeah. Yeah, mocking in its nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think, that's, I think that's a really important point. I think within our culture, self-deprecation is highly valued because we have a, a culture that has a strong sense of tall poppy syndrome. We want to consider ourselves a very egalitarian society. Um, and so certainly when I have reflected on that problem, um, I think, A, I don't want to be coming up and coming across as you must not do this. I think what's important is think about the impact of the choices that you are making in your narrative and that there are pros and cons to every choice you will make and that doesn't mean one is wrong but you've got to balance up those risks and that sometimes the risks are not recognised. So that is my main goal is to make you aware of that so you can make an informed choice. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a lighthearted sim. But interestingly, Jackie, I noticed you mentioned self-deprecation. Um, uh, but if I reflect on the sims I have been involved with personally, I actually don't see a lot of role modelling of self-deprecation. I see deprecation of others. I don't see a lot of emergency physicians jumping in and mocking emergency physicians. I see emergency physicians jumping in and mocking anaesthetists or whatever else or whatever, whatever team you're in. So I think that while we often label something as self-deprecation, I, I don't think that's necessarily what we're doing. Whereas I think self-deprecation is a wonderful tool for lowering hierarchy, role modeling vulnerability, um, and um, making it clear that within this team, uh, we all make mistakes um, and that we are approachable, fallible human beings. But I think that maybe it would be better if we do that by role modelling uh, or self-deprecating ourselves rather than necessarily um, criticising others, particularly if the goal of the sim is to merge our teams. Ben, um, there's science behind the, old, the whole idea of a, an emotional contagion. So. You know, if we if we smile at somebody, they'll fake a smile. They'll yeah. smile back at us, and then our next smile will be real. Yeah. Um, was ease and big stuff? Was it almost like there was a cultural contagion as well? That if we say often enough that there is tribalism, then it more tribalism actually happens. And so, is there an opportunity for us to actually in our sims influence the real culture? Mm. Uh, thanks for uh, bringing that up. So, I guess in this paper that I've linked. Not so much, because that was specifically looking at what med students take away from studying. Um, but I'm assuming you're alluding to the, to the other paper, which um, 
I can't remember the title of right now, but um, was a wonderful paper where they did a similar strategy, did an ethnographic and qualitative analysis of their multi-team uh, trauma simulations involving the whole of the hospital. Um, and in there, they very much found that it was the relationships um, that were considered the most valuable learning. Simply uh, getting to understand each other and understand each other's perspectives, needs and drives was actually um, the biggest value rather than learning about a specific uh, condition or a specific uh, management for something. And it allowed them to uh, reorientate themselves as, as a whole team um, and continue to build value in day-to-day -day real practice uh, when they would meet again on the floor. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So um, I think to me, it's a really important point. And certainly when I am writing sims or now when I'm reviewing sims that my fellow has written, uh, one of my first trigger points will be to look at it, make sure for, it's medically sound from a physiological point of view, and then really look at it and say, okay, and in terms of the messages that we are sending, uh, what are we transmitting here? Yeah, what are we saying by this parent being histrionic. Uh, there's one sim, for example, in our uh, courses where often the patient with NAI, the parent has repeatedly come in, looked dodgy, and then if nobody pays attention to them, they have stolen some fentanyl. Yeah? Now, I've never met a patient, parent who's come in with a shaken baby who's stolen drugs. What we're doing there is accidentally and unintentionally role-playing our own biases and fears. So just having that as a useful trigger point to think about why are we doing this? Is this the right tool for what we actually want to teach? And if not, can we change it? And I think in particular, if we don't want to, um, it's okay to, have, to write scenarios or narratives where people make mistakes, but write it so that they make a mistake for a good reason or a reason that has a valid perspective. You know, uh, there are plenty of times where we are in interacting in medicine where we have disagreeing strong opinions that both are in many ways valid and that can lead to a very natural conflict while still helping us come to understand each other better. So when I think about cultural compression and I think about uh, the sims that I see, and I guess I'll try and contextualize within the APLS sims that I've seen, um, and I am trying to contextualize without sounding like I'm specifically wanting to criticize, um, but I think there are times when we take that sim to uh, facilitate our little Oscar moment or our time to act up and uh, sort of turn parents in particular into a cartoon. Uh, and I don't think that's the expectation that parents would have if they saw us training. Um, as, a, as a parent who had limited access to my son in ICU, it's not the message that I want to be sending my staff. I want to be sending the message that parents are uh, usually very capable uh, always concerned about their, their child and are a useful advocate and source of information. So writing a parent who's actually collaborative rather than histrionic might teach my juniors a better and stronger approach to interacting with parents uh, than getting them to practice dealing with a difficult parent uh, by mocking them. I think the other risk with sometimes overacting, adding noise, adding lots of drama to a sim, um, is that we overload the learners. Um, so uh, a number of times I'll see a scenario where it's been written and designed uh, almost as a big dramatic medutainment experience and we feel like we've got to have lots of drama, um, lots of blood, lots of uh, gory moulage and uh, some good acting, um, challenging interactions for everybody on board. You know? And I think as simulation as a culture has matured, I think we've come to realise that in some ways we're actually sabotaging our learning objectives that way. And this paper, to me, more than many others, has really uh, impacted my approach to writing sims, to debriefing sims, uh, in that it's made me become much more simple and focused on what specific learning outcome I have for a scenario. So uh, this is an open access paper. It's a really good read. and if you um, if you don't know much about cognitive load theory, it's a great uh, primer. It's focused on cognitive load for debriefing, but it's a really good overview of the concepts as well. So if you don't know super heaps about cognitive load theory, I know we often reference it as being sort of the concept that the brain can only do too many things at once and then we, then we get overloaded. But when people think kind of deeply about cognitive load, they divide it into three different sections. 
So there is firstly intrinsic load. And so that is uh, essentially the pure amount of brain power that is always going to be needed to learn a new concept. Yeah. Um, so if I'm teaching my kid how to play chess, there is going to be a certain amount of brain power that that's always going to require as a new learner. Okay. After that, uh, or sometimes considered a component of that is germane load. And germane load for me has taken me a little bit of time to get my head around, but essentially it is this idea that not only do you learn something in the moment, but then you've got to kind of factor it into a, a schematic or structure for long-term retention. And so when you're thinking about teaching, it can be useful to separate those two parts. Just getting the concept, and then making a long-term schematic for long-term learning. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's the concept of extraneous load. And extraneous to load is the, the brain power that's needed just to filter all the other signals that we're being given. And that, I think, is where we often fall into danger with simulation teaching in particular. And then if I'm wanting to teach some, a, a team to reflect on how fast, how effectively they can uh, securely and in a sterile fashion access a, a child with febrile neutropenia's port and give uh, appropriate antibiotics in a timely fashion, then if I then add a whole bunch of other stuff like uh, you know, a parent who um, is obstructive or um, any kind of other noise, then in many ways actually what I'm doing is I'm adding extraneous load. So that may negatively impact those learners' ability to process the really important stuff and instead focus on everything to a point where their learning objectives are actually damaged. You know? And this to me has been a really, really powerful point for when I teach in that I think I teach much more simply and I aim much lower for what I want my, my team to walk away with because if they learn something simple, uh, then I've won. If I put on a huge extravaganza um, and they don't learn as much, then I've really sabotaged myself, even though if everyone walks away and says that was a really good sim. So when I think about these individual concepts, to me in particular, when it comes to intrinsic load, really think about your learning objectives. Have a think about what are the core two or three things that I want people to learn from this scenario. And APLS demonstrates that really nicely um, with their sims in terms of the learning objectives are very concise, clear. Understand the structured approach to the patient with pneumonia or understand the, the structured approach to a child with uh, C-spine injury and um, intra-abdominal trauma. Yeah? Um, so really, really streamline it and then try and cut away anything that you do not need. Yeah? Um, and then I think that can be useful because that allows us to decrease the noise. So a lot of the sims I've written recently don't actually include parents. Um, and that will be because if I'm wanting a team to just rehearse the management of asthma and I don't want them to rehearse parent interactions, then I'm going to make sure that all of their actions and the debrief is focused on the management of asthma. If I want my team to practice parent interaction, then I'll write a different sim. Yeah. And in addition to that, I think one weakness that we have is when it comes to germane load, we'll often provide a simulation, but we don't often think about how people are going to process, reflect, and learn from that information again, both from an individual level and from a departmental level. Um, and so certainly uh, with some of the sims we've been doing recently, we'll, we've pre-made some infographics that can be sent out in the week after the sim, as well as to the wider department so that the rest of the department can learn from what we're doing. Um, I think as well, when we're debriefing, being able to succinctly summarize, paraphrase the key learning objectives is actually a really important skill uh, because it helps people process the event they've just been through and have some clear take-homes. Any reflections on that or questions or disagreements? We, we do have everything thrown at us at the same time, so mm. we often have to manage a difficult parent, a fitting baby, and, you know, somebody asking us something else. And I just wonder whether or not there, there's ever a role for a sim that does throw everything at the people. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for bringing that up, because I think that's a, a point that I really missed, in that um, I think, again, 
understanding these concepts to me then allows me to always think about it depending on what my learning objective is. And I think if my learning objective is to allow a high-performing team uh, to rehearse in a realistic environment uh, believable challenges that they genuinely have to do and to allow a space to reflect and improve on that, then I think that's a great time to throw the whole works at them. But I want to make sure that I've got a team that has the capacity to do that rather than overwhelming them. So I think that is a great insight to sim that incorporates people who would be reasonable at that but have opportunities to grow from it. Um, whereas I think if we're, if we're teaching um, some new grads and interns uh, and throwing them into a similar thing, then we're damaging our learning. So I think it's always about what is the outcome I want and does this reinforce it? And so to, that is, I think, that kind of, if we're wanting people to practice filtration and being able to multitask and manage and um, sort of task assign a complex issue, then absolutely, I think it, you, you do need, not necessarily, I guess then you'd say, is this extraneous or is this intrinsic? Um, but there will still be times, I think, where we can reflect on, well, what's too much? Um, and what's, what's distracting from my real goal? And what's actually necessary? And if the real goal is, I want my consultants to practice really challenging stuff and they've identified some stuff they want to rehearse, I think that's perfect. <coughs> does that, how does that sound? Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah. Um, relevant to the APLS low fidelity sims, I've found sometimes when I've really tried to pair it back, there's been some tumbleweed moments yep. where there's been a lot of silence in the room and I haven't wanted to necessarily push the learner, but I was aware that there were the other four or five people in the room acting as observers and still wanting them to get something out of the scenario. Yep. Are there some tools to find a happy balance? Um, thank you so much for that question. So I think it's a really interesting point. And I think that uh, a really strong simulation facilitator, um, it does require a high amount of sort of emotional intelligence and adaptability. And, and to me, I think one of the important points is um, having a whole lot of drama for the person who's new, who, for whom just going through A, B, C, D, E is actually quite a lot, um, is inappropriate. But again, if there's someone who is clearly uh, smashing it out the park, um, then I think adding a little bit at least of humour or something to make it more engaging for them I think is totally fine. Um, the challenge is uh, being able to perceive that in the moment, I think. And I think there's some things you can get just from data. If you know someone's looking overwhelmed before you start, start simple, go slow. Um, I think if someone's looking bored, um, I don't think it's appropriate to then punish them by increasing complexity, for example. But I think the other opportunity is just allow them to do it well, efficiently, and then debrief with the group uh, their thinking and why they did it well and how they role modeled that. And going from there. How does that sit with you? Yeah, it's an, it's a, I think that's part of the fun is that it's an art, not a science, and you do have to titrate your dosage of this stuff. And I think, uh, to me, again, the message is just be aware of it, not to not do this and do do this, but be aware of it. You've got to dial, and you've got to adapt that volume of stuff to your learner's needs. Yeah. Um, I will move on from there. Can I just check for time? How are we going? Are we, we got 15 minutes? Okay, cool. Uh, so the next situation I want to think about a little bit, and I know that Mike Shepard re referenced this last year in his talk about clinical event debriefing, is a uh, concept of zoning problems or sim zones. Uh, so this is a paper uh, from Peter Weinstock from Boston Children's Hospital. And in it, uh, they talk about this concept of sim zones. And that is the, sort of a conceptual breakdown of the different types of simulation that their service op op offers and operates, and a reflection on when those are appropriate and for what level of learner, and what their benefits are and what their costs are. And again, I think this is often something we don't think about. I think uh, certainly within hospital environments, I think we've consistently delivered the same kind of product, which would be a big multidisciplinary team, a long debrief, and then hoping that some change will come out of that. Um, 
but I think there are times where that's not the right tool. So they break it down into four or five zones, depending on how you look at it. So zone zero is actually sort of certainly not from a traditional medical education simulation. They talk about it more um, as being an often virtual environment, a very low signal to noise um, situation where a learner can either self-rehearse or learn a new concept. And that could be anything from reading an assigned textbook or paper to doing some e-learning. And I think the APLS e-learning is a brilliant example of a zone zero intervention, yeah? Because it's one that can be infinitely repeated uh, to a large volume of learners. So it's efficient once it's made, yeah? It gives people time, so it allows them to process it at a pace that they set, which is appropriate for themselves. It allows them to redo it and understand core new concepts in a fairly luxurious, gentle time frame. Yeah? So that would be considered Sim Zone Zero. After that is Zone One. And they talk about that more being almost like a little workshop where you're now incorporating a group of learners and you're helping facilitate an understanding of those core concepts that they've learned, yeah? So an APLS workshop or discussion group, for example, would be a great example of a time where you have a facilitator. There is clearly an expert in the room, but they're guiding a discussion and contextualization of those core concepts. And then they move into what we would probably consider a more traditional sim. So in Sim Zone 2, uh, the, the classic example is mock code. So, you know, having a group of people uh, in your real hospital or in a sim lab going to rehearse, attending an emergency, practicing it, and then going away and reflecting on those concepts. And then Sim Zone 3 is uh, where you're now using native teams. So you're starting to move more from an educational space into a quality and safety space a little bit, talking about how does this system work well? Uh, how are we interacting? How is our equipment? Are there opportunities to refine and improve our, uh, our behaviours and our outcomes for patients? And then actually they then move to Sim Zone 4, which is something that has a lot of appeal for me recently. Um, which is essentially moving beyond simulation at all and moving the learning conversation to uh, real events within our practice and taking the same conversational techniques that we've used uh, in the sim lab or in the education centre and moving it to, floor, to the floor and saying, why do we need to create a sim when we've actually had five real events today that we can actually talk about, learn from uh, and check our systems as well. I think those concepts, when I first read this paper, they didn't appeal to me very much. I thought they were kind of obvious uh, and that I didn't really know what to do with them. But again, I think as with the, team, with the sort of theme of this talk, if you're not aware of them, then you don't have control over those decisions. You're just doing something instinctively. Uh, and to me, uh, there are plenty of times within our team our simulation service where we've really had to think about, well, what is the most effective and efficient way to deliver the learning objective we want? And the answer is not infrequently, not a simulation, or if it is, it's either a very low fidelity simulation. One interesting thing for me from an APLS context is that I, I certainly hear uh, perspectives that we should move to a full team-based scenario training for all of our sims. And I guess to me, when I think about sim zones, I would respectfully disagree. I think that um, for our level of learner that I don't think necessarily our course is particularly designed for native team rehearsal or that we have to replicate real life. To me, APLS's biggest strength is it's an opportunity for repetitive mental rehearsal and really hammering in those simple basic structures to a point where you walk away and you have essentially overtrained and they are brainstem behaviours now. So to me, if we're then moving to a multidisciplinary team-based approach, there's actually some risk in that, in that some of those opportunities for deliberate repetitive mental rehearsal are lost in the pursuit of realism. So again, that's just my perspective, but I think thinking about those concepts really helps me refine and understand my intention and structure of a particular design better. Any other perspectives on that? Oh, good. All righty. Um, and so I want to talk about one more zone before we finish up, and, and this is the zone of proximal development. So this is Stuart Marshall, and this paper 
um, is actually an editorial discussing another paper. Um, but for me, I've linked it because it introduced some concepts that I didn't know because I'm not a, a, um, a trained academic or anything. Um, and in particular, so Stuart is talking in this paper about an article where a group of anesthetic trainees uh, were split into two different groups, one where they did a sim and if they didn't do it successfully, the patient died, and one group where they, uh, even if they didn't do it correctly, the patient did not die. And then when they repeated that scenario six months time with the same group of trainees, uh, the trainees for whom the patient died when they made an error actually performed better. And there's a lot of controversy about psychological safety and, and patient death in a simulation. Um, but to me, actually, the most important point of Stuart's paper was he talked about this concept of finding the sweet spot in training where we are pushing people enough without breaking them. And he refers to this uh, concept called Vygotsky or Vygotsky, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, the zone of proximal development. And I think it's a really useful tool that harkens back to that other question about how hard do we push our teams and when is it appropriate to add some noise. Um, so Vygotsky's zone of development, uh, proximal development essentially talks about the fact that there's some stuff that we can do already, that we're already pretty proficient with. And that's probably not a great spot for our simulations to be in, um, unless we're just doing it as this is something we do every day and we want to check if there's any systems interventions or quick things we can do to improve our service. So more from a quality and safety than an educational perspective. If everyone can do everything that you're rehearsing, then it's a bit of a missed opportunity given the expense of sim. And then there's gonna be this sweet spot where people can do something if they have enough support. And the argument being that that is really the best situation for learners to be in, and they're being pushed without being broken. And I think the challenge with that is that that zone will be different for the individuals and for the groups um, uh, quite frequently. So it's not necessarily easy to read, and I think then we go to we'll do someday, which is essentially gonna be the things that people are not capable of doing now, and if we've designed a sim to push them to that, then we often will break them, we will break that psychological safety, and they might become averse to the simulation experience. So I know when I did my adults year, I got put in a scenario, and every other reg was in their exam training, so it was just me, a bunch of very nice nurses looking slightly disappointed at me as I repeatedly failed uh, to manage a not particularly complex adult patient who I was unfamiliar with and overwhelmed. Yeah? And so I then became very nervous about participating in simulations in the future and I still remember it well. And to me there was nothing wrong with this sim. Yeah? It was just that for my individual needs I had been pushed far beyond my capacity in a public space. So it can be a very negative experience. Um, I think that's hard to solve, but I think one of the things I've seen other um, simulationists practice really effectively is to be a bit reflexive about it, to have some tools in your utility belt to rescue a little bit. So if you see someone who's being overwhelmed, I don't think you have to sit there and watch them get overwhelmed and then debrief them nicely afterwards or tell them they did okay, yeah? So other options would be utilizing pause and discuss. So I think pause and discuss is an excellent technique to provide people with enough support to succeed. So if they're being overwhelmed in an APLS sim, I will quite happily just pause, say, hey, let's just take a recap and figure out where we're at. You're looking a little bit flustered at the moment um, and recap and then give them enough structure to say, how about we just go back, go back to the structured approach, and I think you'll be okay, yeah? So that's one technique. Another technique in a more high fidelity sim might be having, having more confederates, so having people role play within the scenario, but specifically to be there so that if the candidates are being overwhelmed, that they can actually rescue and still role model and provide guidance to succeeding in that simulation, while simultaneously transmitting a message that actually, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you call for help, you'll get help and we will support you through this. Yeah. So those are my big ticket items that I think I um, and us as simulation culture have some, sometimes fallen into traps where it's not necessarily wrong, but we haven't recognized that we're potentially negatively impacting our teaching. So in particular, mixed messages and the hidden curriculum thinking about adding pointless drama when actually drama is not helpful. 
um, and thinking about, is the sim in the right zone? Have we designed this to be the most efficient and appropriate teaching tool for this particular learner's needs? Um, I think it's really more, even more than those specific points, really important to just reflect on the fact that there is teaching and learning in everything that we do, in every interaction and every question that our learners and uh, our staff um, come to us with. Uh, there is an opportunity for us to, them to learn about us and to learn about the culture that we're trying to, trying to teach and to learn what we think about others and for them to adapt their behaviour accordingly. Uh, so I think it's really important to think about our learning objectives um, and have a think about whether the learning objectives you're saying are the same as are actually playing out in your sims. I'll open it up to some questions. So Ben, you just you just told us about um, you know being supportive in the end and not having people overwhelmed. But the paper before said that uh, the anaesthetic trainees who had people die on them learnt a lot better. So I'm wondering how you reconcile those those two points of view. And also, I think clinically, a lot of us have learnt a lot from some of the shittiest things that have happened to us. Mm. And um, it's hard to know how you maintain a safe environment but you also provide a challenging situation for people where they might fail. Yeah. yeah, look, um, so I certainly don't have a perfect answer to it and I agree it is a bit of a dichotomy. Um, and I think that there are, I think that to me it just requires a lot of emotional intelligence, reflection and reading your learners appropriately. And, and so to me, um, the, there is definitely learning to be had in a negative experience. Um, I think that's why negative experiences are such a well-incorporated um, teaching tool within many out of our specialty training programs. Um, no, <laughs> but I think it's. I think we, I don't think we do it because we're mean. I think we do it because it's worked for a very long time in lots of ways. But there's an opportunity cost in that if we have someone who is uh, gentler, more sensitive, but has just as much capacity to be a good candidate for whatever they're training in, and we break that candidate, we're essentially potentially self-selecting a group of people who are comfortable with that risk, but losing the opportunity of some different personality types as well. I think there is also conflict in the fact that we need to be able to push people to the point where they can learn. And we also, uh, Stuart's paper really highlights that um, we need to be able to push people to a point where they can actually make decisions for themselves. And if they're just slipstream trainees until they finish their training and then the next day they're a consultant and they've never had to make a decision before, then we have failed them as trainers. Uh, so I worry that psychological safety has often been misconstrued as psychological comfort or feeling good rather than feeling challenged. Um, and I think the sweet spot is going to be um, feeling challenged enough but not breaking people. Um, and I, I think it's really just about having some, some tools to rescue if someone's clearly looking overwhelmed or near tears or um, discloses afterwards that they they have felt overwhelmed and are ashamed or whatever, that you have some tools in your belt to rescue and repair psychological safety and um, without breaking every candidate. But I think it is also important to set a tone that we are here to be challenged. My worry is that, again, we misconstrue those dials. So I often see people challenging people very early on um, and often because of hierarchy being much easier and more tolerant of behaviours when people are higher up in the hierarchy, when maybe they should be the ones who are being challenged, but it's often not. That's, I don't know if that answers any of those questions, no, but yeah, it's but uh, you know it's art, not a science, and it is it is hard to find that right sweet spot. Just actually ask you, um, it's along the lines I'm hearing this. It seems to be a lot of pressure being put on the one person who's running this. And I'm just wondering, when you run sims, are you running them in a team? And I'm assuming yes. And then I'm wondering how you pre-brief the team to look out for these things, so that if you're engaged in one thing, your own cognitive load. So what do you do to collectively 
have this sort of frame of balance of pushing to build resist, you know, resilience. Yeah. I, I sort of see you, you're pushing to build someone to be able to cope with something. Mm. But equally in the moment, you've got to juggle these things. So what do you do with your co-facilitators? Uh, great question. So I guess I certainly can't claim that I role model that perfectly every time either. But I think um, certainly techniques I've seen other u- others use will include if there is a clear candidate who is at risk, you know, with the APLS instructor meetings, for example, uh, identifying people who are uh, either having a hard time outside of the course or who might be feeling a little bit more uh, vulnerable than others and actively naming and planning for that in advance is really useful. Um, I think I can give... So there was an example when I was a SIM fellow and I was just learning and we walked in one day and I was watching a, a sim in the recess room where a, a, um, a guy who just failed his reg exams for ICU uh, was doing terribly at um, managing a PA arrest. And um, I'd said, oh, I'm, he's just failed his exam. And um, the consultants who were on just beautifully went, right, thanks for pointing that out and really beautifully steered and supported him through. So they then dialed through in the simulation and said, hi, I heard there was someone sick. Um, How are you doing? Is there anything I can help with? And sort of gave them clear points to succeed so that that person who's in a more vulnerable headspace uh, isn't punished for it and is able to retain their sort of social dignity at the same time. Um, So to me, there are some prospective things you can do and then there's some reactive things that you can do and I think both of those tools are really important and I think a lot of it will come down to reading body language effectively, pausing and actually actively listening to the candidates rather than speaking so much that they can't speak um, and hearing what they're saying and the signals that you're giving. I do also hear from what you're saying that sometimes there's so much pressure on the debriefer or the simulationist to almost be some kind of psychic who can understand what everybody in the room perceives and I don't think that's true. So I think that the learner and the educator have a responsibility. So the psychological safety or the safe container is a shared space where you create a a social contract to take risks in the pursuit of higher learning and that we all bear responsibility, the learner bears responsibility to signal their distress respectfully if they're feeling that pushed, to, you know, to get to a point where they are comfortable in that environment within a certain stage. And I don't think we can expect every simulationist to be able to do that. Um, but I think being aware of the concepts helps us get to that point. And I think a lot of us, because we have trained by watching other people run some sims, doing it ourselves, doing what we've teaching how we've taught for many years. Um, I think that we just potentially, it's something that we're not aware of, so we can't get better at it. And I think if we're aware of it, then we have the opportunity to get better at it, whereas if we're not aware of it, we're never going to grow. Mm. Two more <clears throat> um, I just have a question regarding the complexity of the simulations and also sort of stretching the learners. Um, so, and I realise that, you know, there's lots of different kinds of simulations and what we do in APLS and what we do um, with our actual working doctors is quite different. Um, I guess, you know, from my perspective, if with, with doctors doing simulations, um, if the scenario is something that they might encounter, then I'm keen to go for that and I'm keen to push them with cognitive load um, because I feel that I would rather... Um, candidate got broken, I'd rather that than the patient got broken in real life. And if the simulation, if the scenario is something that them in their capacity is very likely to encounter, then we should go for that and we should go for the tricky ones. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that or whether you think I'm just sort of putting them in a danger zone all the time. Um, yeah, I guess if, I guess the phrase I'd rather they were broken than the patient is kind of a red flag that someone might get broken. Um, And I think that uh, it is, I think one thing that I find remarkable is how vulnerable we all are to uh, identity threat um, and how quickly we are to withdraw from educational opportunities and other opportunities in life 
um, if we perceive social risk. Um, so I run an online international journal club where anyone can come and comment. We have, uh, you know, we've had like 80,000 downloads or something. Someone's clearly listening. The effort to get eight or nine people to comment every month uh, is incredible. Like it's so hard just to get a group of educators to, uh, to take some time and share their own perspectives on a paper. And when I talk to people, it's because, oh, I'm a bit intimidated. Um, and you see it everywhere you go. You see it when you go to a, a lecture and everybody's sitting in the back row, right? Um, it is universal that we assess risk very effectively and uh, we move to mitigate and avoid risk very effectively most of the time. And I think that actually the people who are, you know, there will always be uh, these sort of, certainly the learners that you love who are really keen to jump in, take risks, uh, expose their flaws and have a really strong sense of security and comfort doing that and kind of get a thrill uh, out of that. And I think that they're fun to teach, um, but I think it is a very fragile space. And so even though um, it is important to push people, I think if we are pushing them to the point of breaking uh, in pursuit of patient safety, I would argue that their emotional and intellectual withdrawal from further education is more risk um, than them feeling um, bad about that particular issue. So I think it does have to be negotiated carefully in that um, these are, it's a long-term culture. I think psychological safety is established over a long, longitudinal piece of um, point in time. I think that it is established slowly and shattered very quickly um, and that different people's threshold from an individual, an organisational and a group perspective will be really variable. And so I certainly would tend to go gentler rather than breaking people. Um, but I think it really depends on what you're wanting to get out of it. And I think that there is a very different, it's very different to say we are a high-performing emergency team and we are going to practice uh, intubating a sick asthmatic uh, and it's potentially not going to go well because we need to practice it not going well and pushing people to that edge versus pushing someone who's clearly not capable of it. So I think it's just that sensitivity to who the learners are. I would certainly say that uh, I've started to feel more comfortable and I think Different people will have a strong opinion about this, but I think sim culture sometimes has been so keen for honest, open, frank conversations that sometimes I've seen that almost used to the point of being a weapon because how can you, how can you disagree or feel upset when I'm just telling you honestly how you feel? But there are times where I think you can push people and I certainly have seen that when I use the same conversational technique in M&M, for example, where I go, actually, this is, this is a really sensitive issue and even though I, I think there's teaching in here, I either break this person or I make my point and if that person's broken, they're not going to retain my point. They're just going to have a whole bunch of negative emotions. So I don't know if anyone else has a perspective because it's a great question. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem in challenging people. Yeah. I think it's a, yeah, it's a really long-term game. Like at the moment, uh, we are doing in-situ sims with emergency and ward staff uh, in our department. And the ward staff are particularly nervous because they don't see as much acuity, uh, but they come across to help when there's a resus in our small service. Um, and certainly some of my fellows have been debriefing the nurses far too harshly, even though they're actually, it's not particularly harsh, but in terms of, I think, there is a relationship building component to this and I think people will get to a point where they're comfortable 
pushing themselves. And certainly like day three of APLS, you'll see candidates who are, the group is clearly open to taking risk and stepping up in front of each other. But day one, they're not ready for it. And I think the same thing happens in the hospital. I think there has to be a trusting relationship built with time. And if it's the first time and you break them, then it can be years before they'll come back, particularly with the consultants, to be honest. Um, would be. It's more a bit of a comment. Um, just reducing the cognitive load on instructors. What we're encouraging now is for the co-instructor to perform the debrief. So that takes that load off of the person who's running the scenario. And you probably see that happening in courses more commonly now where one instructor will run it and the other instructor will run the learning conversation. Um, and the other thing is using the group, you can pick up, um, you know, by, by day three, the group has bonded off and, and they'll be supporting each other. And sometimes by carefully watching what's happening and, and often for the weaker candidates, you'll see them being supported by their group and allowing that to happen in a way that if you're aware of it, then you can enhance the, the candidate's mm. learning. You, you don't shut it down if it's working well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And oh, I'll stop there. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we, <laughs> might take, we might take that as a comment. <laughs> And uh, Great. thanks very much, Ben. I've uh, had the privilege of hearing Ben talk about some of those concepts before and have read some of the background material. I'd certainly commend that to you as well. Uh, and it has changed the way that I actually conduct both my uh, simulations and my debriefing in both APLS and in the other simulations I do. So there's certainly uh, lots of food for thought there. So thanks very much, Ben, for that. Please We'd love to hear from you. Contact or comment at simulationpodcast.com.